Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid. If you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personally. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Retrospectating 1999, The Sixth Sense, by M. Night Man himself. I must admit, I just got done listening to our AFI podcast about The Sixth Sense, Yeah, literally moments ago. Okay. Um, because I guess I wanted to punish myself or something, and uh, yeah, we just we just butcher it all the way through. Especially me, I actually feel kind of bad about that. Shyamalan, I guess, is uh, is probably the easiest way to say it. I was just having the hardest time with it throughout that whole episode, and uh, you know, he kind of brings it on himself a little bit because his middle name is not actually Knight, so uh, it is. There's a little bit of pretense to that. His, his M stands for Menage, but I believe the N. His middle name is actually Neliyatu. Now, okay. maybe that means night in Hindi. I haven't done my research, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's just an affectation. It's it's a good looking name when you see it in print, and I'm sure that's what he was going after. You know, he's a man who cares about his aesthetics. Yeah. Uh, but we'll be getting into the sixth sense uh, in just a second. But Matt, I think you want to do a little uh, quick little recap of of the series to date. Yeah, we've uh, we just passed the halfway point of the year, so obviously we're you know probably a little past the halfway point of this series. And I kind of just wanted to get you know any dangling thoughts you have at the moment about how far we've come, about you know what we've discussed, about films that we haven't really touched on that that you've been thinking about recently. Anything like that to drum up anything for you? I saw a tweet today, Matt, and the tweet said, uh, "Being in your thirties is." constantly thinking that the 90s were 10 years ago (laughs) (laughs) and it kind of feels like that you know sure uh these movies are sort of etched in our brains they you know they came at a pretty formative time in our lives and uh they feel sort of recent in some cases and in other cases they feel extremely foreign but it has been a nice trip down memory lane and it's kind of crazy to see all these really iconic meaningful at least to us movies uh came out in such quick succession over the course of 1999 and it's also been interesting to see so many pop culture outlets or you know culture criticism outlets hopping on this 99 train now i don't want to necessarily say they're they're riding our coattails but you know we were there from the beginning we started this thing in february but then again you know 1999 as a great year for movies is is not a radical notion but it is it is interesting seeing pretty much every you know important media outlet uh sounding off about 99 in their own way you know right now the guys on the slash film 
podcast have their 99 was the greatest year ever episode and the guys over on the you know the ringer guys from the rewatchables podcast are doing a whole series behind a paywall about 99 movies you know the av club has been doing a whole 1999 retrospective thing with a bunch of articles and stuff uh just this last week actually well let's sue sue them all (laughs) luckily nobody's taken our retrospectating name but there's a couple things i wanted to shout out that we aren't going to dedicate entire episodes to I'm, I'm i'm pretty proud of what we've we've discussed thus far but you know we never really got to talk about locks talking two smoking barrels and about all of guy Ritchie's promise and the fact that his career i don't think was necessarily what any of us expected or wanted for him given the the promise of his first two films going back to guy Ritchie, i think that would would and will be at some point, an interesting conversation to have because you can't call his career a, a bomb of any kind. You can't say he's been sort of to be working steadily and to become such a massive mercenary for the studio system over the last 10, 15 years. Um, that is success in his own right. And there's probably something to be said that he's best at doing one extremely specific kind of movie. So we can get into that when he comes out with his next uh, gangster movie uh, that I think is filming right now, right? Yeah, it's called The Gentleman, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, boy, what an apropos title. Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, Jeremy Strong, Colin Farrell, Henry Golding, Hugh Grant. Mm -hmm. There's some handsome gentlemen in that movie. Indeed there are. So uh, we'll get to that in the, what, fall of 2020? Whenever that comes Something out. like that. We can blame him for Matthew Vaughn, though, right? Oh, yeah. We can blame Guy Ritchie for, for, for bringing us Matthew Vaughn. So, yeah. I mean, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels is a film I didn't I didn't see in the theater in 1999. But it certainly Ooh, was. I did. Did you really? You were ahead <laughs> yeah. of the curve. Yeah. I mean, that was a perennial dorm room favorite for us, right? That and Snatch. I mean, that was those, are, those two movies especially were really dialed right at 18-year-old boys. Yeah, and got a lot of people to learn how to put on closed captioning on their DVDs. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, but anyway, did you see? Uh, did you see? Have you seen Summer of Sam? Spike Lee's uh, relatively I, obscure. I saw piece? it. I think when it, I think it was on HBO for a while. Yeah. Um, after it came out, but that's the you know I, I saw it 19 years ago. So yeah, it's a wacky movie. It's 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 five or six movies kind of shoehorned together into one sprawling like i said messy kind of epic but it leg was almost pretty phenomenal and it it was kind of the first time i really sat up and noticed adrian brody because he doesn't have a lot to do and you know the thin red line and i hadn't seen uh king of the hill by that point so it was kind of the first time i was like whoa adrian brody that guy's got something going on so that that's just a film that i find myself kind of revisiting weirdly even though i don't think it's a very good movie (laughs) Sure. So, because it's very, it's, it's surprisingly watchable. That is, uh, that's a common trait of Spike Lee's uh, bad movies. Yeah, fair. And the other movie I was kind of thinking of, especially in the context of The Sixth Sense as it pertains to the sort of famous ending, is Arlington Road. Okay. <laughs> the uh, the Mark Pellington movie from Aaron Kruger's script, Tim Robbins and, and, and Jeff Bridges. I think it's a pretty fun movie. Uh, yeah, I like that movie. What I remember most about that movie is... Maybe it was the uh, the TV shows I was watching, but they uh, pimped the hell out of that movie. I feel like commercials for that movie were all over the screen in 1999. Yeah, I actually just rewatched the trailer for it right before we started recording here, and it's it's pretty silly. You should go check it out. Like it's really it's, it's very much a time capsule into how those kinds of films are being sold to us in the late 90s. Uh, it, it's not indicative of how fun the movie actually is it's you know it's very much akin you know it's, it's sort of a sister project to something like um blown away right it's like jeff bridges was doing so many of those kind of paranoid thrillers in the 90s yeah it's just funny to think that that's who he was and what he was doing considering how we think of him now i mean arlington road is technically after the big lebowski but 
he really doesn't do those kinds of films and doesn't play those kinds of roles. And when was the last time Jeff Bridges did a movie without a beard? Yeah. Right? I mean, watching for him in the trailer for Arlington Road, uh, all clean shaven, it's like he just looks like a completely different person. And then another movie I was thinking of, which I feel has gone through sort of a reclamation project of the last 20 years and now is sort of, I think, considered to be a little bit of a guilty pleasure, cult classic, whatever you want to call it, is Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I saw that in the theater. Did you really? Enjoy the hell out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's got one of, you know, it's got a great Sam Jackson performance and one of the funniest uh, motivational speech moments of all time, you know. Truly. And to think about how many films Samuel Jackson has made in his entire career, the fact that he's still working at such a crazy clip. Guess how many movies Samuel Jackson is going to have come out in 2019? 12? Seven. Seven? Okay. Yeah, which That's I still, still think is quite, quite a bit. Now, that includes includes showing up for one you know for one scene at the end of you know Endgame, right yeah so yeah. but still for a man his age the fact that he's still churning him out like that what a stud we're gonna look back on this guy's career and just be in awe uh i was at a movie at uh central cinema before the movie they had this you know they do these clip packages and one of them was a literal like 12 minute compilation of, chronologically of every time sam jackson has ever said motherfucker on screen <laughs> And it was absolutely incredible. Just a joy to watch. Somebody had that job. Somebody, somebody yeah. punched a clock to spend yeah. his time going through, going through all those films. And wow, what a gig! Yeah. Without looking at IMDb, guess how many IMDb credits Samuel L. Jackson has? Now this probably includes like talk show appearances and stuff, but still, yeah. Throw a number out. Oh boy, let me just do some quick back of the napkin math here. <laughs> If he's doing six movies a year for, let's say, 25 years, at least. I'm, I'm going to say he's got, uh, plus all the other bullshit, I'm going to say he's got 164. You're close. 187 okay. credits. Dang, dude. That's nuts. Samuel L. Jackson famously made a film called 187, and that, <laughs> and that film came out in... 1999? No, 97, no. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I was really hopeful that I could that I could make that happen. I was like, ah, shit, two years too early. And he's by far now our, you know, the highest grossing actor of all time, right? Oh, I'm sure, yeah. It's not even close. Yeah, I, between all the Marvel stuff and all the Star Wars stuff. Uh, watch this segue. And Samuel L. Jackson started this year with a film called Glass, which was yeah. a sequel to a film... Shit. What's the name? Split. Split. Sorry. Damn it. Uh, you almost had it. I almost had it. He made a film called Glass earlier this year, which is a sequel to Split, which is directed by M. Night Shyamalan. And we are, of course, here to talk about The Sixth Sense in spite Beautiful. of ourselves. So, like I said, I just re-listened to the podcast we did about two years ago, a little over two years ago. Okay. What were your takeaways from the podcast? Have we grown? I was, it was a tough listen, I got to say. I came off like a total asshole, and I'm also um, struck by how far we've come as far as production value. Good. So uh, I, it, was, it was pretty tough to listen to. I did not come off particularly eloquent so i just want to apologize to everybody who who listened to that episode two years ago because you've, you've been humbled over the years you, you're uh, you're a more open man now it's good yeah and we just sound a hell of a lot better now than we did as as recently as two years ago so that's what i want to say right off the bat is that i'm not gonna be nearly as hard on this movie as i was when we talked about it for the afi i had not watched it since we talked about it last uh, at the time. It never occurred to me that we'd be talking about it again so soon. Mm -hmm. I think it will be fun to get into it because it obviously is very significant to this particular year. And it's also sandwiched between two films that I think it might be interesting to discuss as well. One of which is the Blair Witch Project, which came out almost exactly a month before The Sixth Sense. And the other one is Stir of Echoes from your boy David Kep, which came out almost exactly a month after The Sixth Sense, right? 
Yeah, I've never seen that movie, to be honest. I haven't either, so obviously we won't be able to talk too much about it. But I do know <laughs> that it was considered a flop, and it, a lot of people pointed to the fact that it was because of kind of Sixth Sense fatigue, because it's actually a pretty well-respected movie. Even at the time, critics seemed to like it, but it basically follows a very similar trajectory as The Sixth Sense. And it seemed like people were like, yeah, we saw this already. We don't need to see it again. And it, <laughs> it was more fun seeing Haley Joel Osment do it as opposed to seeing Kevin Bacon do it. But let's start with The Blair Witch Project. You must have seen that in the theater in July of 99. I did. I did indeed see it, yeah. The Meridian 16. Okay. I, I, I didn't have too many people around me who wanted to see it. I probably should have just asked you. But uh, <laughs> I went with my dad and my brother. I remember that. That's funny. I went with my mom and my aunt, oddly enough. What a weird yeah. movie to go to see with family members. Yeah. What was your relationship with the web push, internet presence of the film? You know, I, I don't remember exactly, but I do know that being a Ain't It Cool News guy and a Dark Horizons guy, I had been aware of the movie and I definitely didn't, I didn't think it was real going in. Like that was not something that, uh, I, I mean, I, I remember really liking the movie, but knowing that it wasn't some, you know, real documentary that it was, it was, it was a fake found footage thing. So the web push, as I remember it was trying to make you think that it was a real thing. That's exactly right. But it was also pretty revolutionary as far as internet advertising goes, right? I suppose. Like what, what were the sort of mechanics of that? It wasn't the first film to have a website, obviously, but it was sort of like the first film that really leaned into drawing in an audience online in that manner and like building buzz through its online presence. And gotcha. like building an entire history of the Blair Witch to, yes, to try and convince people that this is a real thing, but also to just get people sort of ingrained in the lore, releasing not just trailers, but, you know, little snippet videos and things that, you know, of course, we would have to use real player or whatever the fuck to download. <laughs> you probably take, yeah. you know, take an hour to download 30 seconds of this thing. But personally, I just remember like sitting in my basement, you know, late at night and just being freaked out by all the stuff I was reading on this website. I mean, it really worked on me. I didn't think it was real, but that didn't stop the fact that I, I you know, had nightmares about it. And the movie just couldn't really live up to that. I, mean, I remember being impressed by it, but mm -hmm. I think I may have seen it once more in college. After I think I've maybe seen Blair Witch Project twice, and I probably should have revisited it this last month, but uh, it's just not something that... It, I remember being so unpleasant just in terms of how nausea-inducing the camera work is. Uh, yeah. I just haven't had much cause to go back and look at it. It's actually, they're doing a 20th anniversary retrospective screening at the King's Theater here in Brooklyn, uh, which will be a, probably a pretty big deal. But it's not until, I think they're doing a Halloween thing, okay, actually. Nice. But it's just, so maybe it might be interesting to watch it on the big screen again. I mean, it is an, it's an experiential thing, for sure. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it, it caught a ton of buzz because it didn't premiere at, at Sundance with uh, sort of audiences being unawares of what yeah. the hell is going on. Yeah, exactly. So, they, I mean, they, they handled that thing perfectly. Still one of the most successful independent films of, you know, $250 million on a $60,000 budget. Yeah. Now I don't think that includes how, what they whatever they spent on marketing for the thing, but still incredibly successful. It's weird that those guys, Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez, never really managed to parlay that into anything. You know, like it was such a phenomenon, and they and they really haven't. I mean, they only have a couple other credits, and it's nothing you've ever heard of. Yeah, maybe they just uh, maybe they got a cut of the, those profits and just decided to hang it up. And you know, the same kind of goes for the cast. They never really managed to, like, I worked with that guy Joshua Leonard on, on a horror movie early in my career when I was a PA, and uh, and he'll pop up in things from time to time. But other than that, um, you, see, you really see them around. It was really just a true 
sort of flash in the pan situation. To what degree do you think the movie's like total success was the web campaign? I do remember they just they had traditional media stuff going on too, right? You know, I think eventually they had trailers, you know, during net network television and stuff. Yeah. But it was just so unique, you know, like the look of it and the sound of it. And honestly, for better or for worse, I think it probably had a lot to do with the mainstream acceptance of digital video, right? Again, I think we've learned over the years that any horror movie that gets any sort of buzz or any sort of traction is just going to make a fuck ton of money, right? You know, if you fancy yourself a low-budget independent filmmaker or you want to break in that way, they say, you know, try to make a great horror movie because you can do it cheaply. And, uh, and yeah, these small horror films that become phenomenons do end up um, having, you know, an enormous return. You know, something like Hereditary recently is a good example, although that, you know, it still has movie stars in it. There's just so many examples of this, you know, going back into the 60s or 70s, you know, Night of the Living Dead or Halloween or, um, you know, Last House on the Left. Yeah. Right. So Blair Witch Project in that regard is in a great lineage of this sort of thing. But I think it's kind of unique because it really legitimized the, you know, accepting digital photography on a big screen and also the found footage gimmick. Right. Mm hmm. Which yeah. uh, and then eventually paranormal activity would come along, and yeah. then and then these guys, you know, and then Troll Hunter and Cloverfield, you know, then you basically end up with sort of like mock versions of this. People working with a pretty decent sized budget, but they're trying to make it look like it's a found footage deal. Yeah, um, and, and actually, I think the guy who directed Troll Hunter just recently released Scary Stories over this last weekend. I think he directed that. Okay, so that's where he came from. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly not my preferred genre. No, you uh, you stayed away from Midsummer this summer, didn't you? Yeah, I have my tickets to It Chapter Two though. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Blair Witch Project comes along, and it becomes this huge phenomenon. And I remember going to see it opening night with my mom and my aunt, and people were just you know, going crazy. Like, you know, I didn't see anybody like vomiting in the aisles from, from motion sickness or anything, but people were legitimately jumping and screaming and, you know, they gasped at the end when she drops the, you know, when you see them over in the guy over there in the corner and, and she drops the camera. I mean, it was, a, it was a really shocking and effective moment. It's a, it's a fantastic ending. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's probably a big part of its success too, is like you, when you stick the landing like that, you're, the, the buzz is going to go out of control. We're having a pretty crazy fun summer by this point between you know american pie and south park the spy who shagged me was was that summer they, they much talked about tarzan on this series <laughs> it was it was a pretty fun summer and the blair witch project just kind of came out of nowhere and really mixed it up and it got people excited about horror movies i think sixth sense was almost more of a left field surprise right like at least we sort of were anticipating the blair witch project sixth sense was not on my radar at all in August of 99. Like that literally came out of nowhere for me. I knew nothing about M. Night Shyamalan and it's not like I was hanging on every, you know, Bruce Willis movie. Yeah. Do you remember the the trailer? Because I don't. Not in any sort of significant way. As a matter of fact, in the category of trailers, I vividly remember going to see The Sixth Sense and the thing that I really took away from that viewing because I wasn't that impressed with the movie was that American Beauty trailer. Like yeah. that was the first time I saw that American Beauty trailer with the Who, you know, with the Bob O'Reilly song was what I everybody wanted to talk about the ending of the Sixth Sense, and all I wanted to do was talk about that trailer. God. But the Sixth Sense trailer, I'm sure I probably saw it, but I have no memory of it. Did you go your first screening of Sixth Sense? Did you know the ending? No, I did not. But I was yeah. that asshole who, after the film, was like, I was so distracted by the fact that they never dealt with the fact that he got shot in the stomach, you know 
know, in the opening scene that it, it just consumed me and distracted me for the entire film. So when he turns out he was dead, it felt sort of inevitable. It didn't feel like a big surprise. Like, oh, okay, good. Thank, thank goodness we're finally dealing with the fact that he got shot in the stomach because it bugged me so much that they just left that hanging for the oh, whole film. Look at this guy, the one guy who predicted the end. I told okay. him I, I, I just got done saying that I wasn't going to be an, <laughs> an asshole. Than this one, like I was the last time we talked about this movie, but that has bothered me for twenty years and still does. Yeah, I actually well, kind of like this movie now. I think this movie actually is kind of effective. Yeah, I mean, of course this movie's effective. I mean, there's a reason it made so much money. There's a reason it got six Oscar nominations. It's an effective movie, and it you know it captured the zeitgeist in a way that I mean, it's sort of a perfect combination of uh, of a lot of things, right? It's it was the hype around Shyamalan being the next Spielberg. It was the twist ending. It was the beginning of spoiler culture, right? I mean, can mm. we can we say that this is the sort of epicenter of uh, of no spoilers or spoiler alerts right here? You know, it's a it's a good question. I, when I was sort of prepping my notes a few minutes ago, I was thinking about you know this, and then of course Fight Club a couple months later. Uh, but I was also thinking about Primal Fear, which would have come a couple, two years, uh, three years before this, right? 96? Yeah. And then uh, The Usual Suspects the year before that. So yeah. it's not like twist endings were invented in the 90s. No, but I, th- I, th- I think I think the rise of the internet, you know, before the internet, there, were, there was really no venue besides being around your friends, you know, to have spoilers. Fair right? enough. Sure. Yeah. So, so, you're, so you're saying that because... This film came out in 99 in a year when a movie like Blair Witch Project, you know, the the conversation about cinema moving online and Dark mm-hmm. Horizons and Ain't It Cool News and ComingSoon.net and all this stuff. So because yes. these these um, forums and these, uh, you know, blogs and things are starting to pop up, spoilers became something you had to start protecting yourself from. This is this is my fully formed theory that I've concocted within the last 90 seconds. I like it. So, did you go in knowing the end? You were you there opening weekend because I was not. I want to say second weekend, but I was there pretty early and I did not know the ending. But but I, but I do remember, I do remember like Anical News or being places where it's like don't read any further unless you want this ending uh, spoiled for you. I don't think I knew that there was a twist, but the people I went to go see it with had already seen it, and they were so excited to see it with somebody who hadn't seen it and had knew, yeah, knew nothing yeah. about that. They were, they were really excited to watch me. I remember that vividly. Uh, and you didn't give them the pleasure, did you? <laughs> well, I didn't gasp. I can't be the only person who, who feels this way. The, the transition from the being shot to, like... It, it's so it, jarring. It, it, it's jarring, but it, it's sort of makes you feel like he's he's recovered now you know i I don't know like that's the feeling i always got it's like okay he's uh spent some time rehabbing now here he is it's just so weird that like he you know that he would never bring it up you know that he would never be like in pain when he leans over to pick something up or bringing it up to Haley jalosman at some point like i've i had this trauma that happened to me but i'm better like it's just the fact that it never comes up once is so distracting to me like the my main issue with this movie is all the logic police stuff the the entire conceit is sort of reverse engineered from where we want to get to with the twist landing that he's been dead the whole time and that's fine and he does it in a perfectly elegant way but there's just so many logic police red flags throughout the movie it's not a deal breaker this movie still works and that, and i get why it's still effective this many years later i do have a hard time watching this movie i do have a tr- hard time turning my brain off when watch this movie i will say that maybe it's just i've taken too many goddamn screenwriting courses over the course of my life easy for me to say this movie was nominated for best screenplay not only that but it, you know the movie sold you know he sold the screenplay for like three million dollars yeah. and retained directing rights on top of that so Did you hear that the guy who bought the screen the guy who worked for disney who bought the screenplay was fired 
yeah. because he's because he spent so much money on the screenplay, they ended up firing him. Disney sold off a bunch of the rights, I think, to Spyglass. I think Spyglass. Yes, that's what it is. They they sold off a bunch of the rights. They retained some of it. They were not confident as confident with it as this one executive was. <laughs> they fired him, and then the movie ends up becoming this huge phenomenon. <laughs> I guess the key question when sort of analyzing this movie is like, does it work as a quality film, a classic film, a worthy of being on the AFI Top 100 film, devoid of the twist at the end? Like, does the quality of this movie just hinge completely on there being a twist at the end? No, hot take. This movie might actually work even better if you just lop that twist off the end of it like i am deeply invested in the relationship between Haley joel osmond and bruce willis i think that works really really well i think his relationship with his mother is really interesting i'm much more interested in that than i am in the eventual reveal like i'm i'm perfectly interested in the idea of bruce willis as a child psychologist living in philadelphia that's enough for me yeah i mean i but i think that does speak to why this movie is regarded so highly is because the twist is just like the the cherry on top exactly. for this movie because it you know it, it works all the way through and, and and that's part of the reason why people seem to really enjoy myself included seeing this multiple times right yeah because you'll you'll see those i mean the usual suspects is the same way right where it's it's not just the twist that makes the movie you want to see how it all works out beforehand and it's all satisfying even in the in, in the lead up so you're saying it's the twist doesn't make the movie but the movie makes the twist yeah yeah that's what i'm saying <laughs> so many words this movie is so elegantly constructed it's so beautifully composed and so beautifully photographed by the great tech fujimoto philadelphia i think is just such an interesting setting i don't know why we don't have more movies set in philadelphia i just finally got a chance to visit philadelphia last year and really really was amazed at how how beautiful and friendly i mean i guess it is a city of brotherly love i shouldn't have been surprised it was friendly but i found it to be just very just evocative and kind of mysterious and lots of old weird alleyways where you could just kind of smell the history i really liked it and i wish we had more movies set there and i was it was such a relief when i saw shazam earlier this year that it was uh, that it was set in philadelphia because i feel like that is a city only you know david o russell and m night Shyamalan tend to you know champion it cinematically m night was what 29 when this movie came out sounds right nyu grad born in india um moved to philadelphia with his parents went through NYU's Tisch program, made his first feature when he was still at NYU, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. Praying with Anger, which I think he starred in. And then, and I think that got him on uh, Miramax's radar. And so then he was, I think he was working for Miramax and Harvey Weinstein was sort of having him ghostwrite. And I think his first writing credit is for Stuart Little, of course, famously or infamously uncredited on She's All That. Yep, <laughs> and then I think that that gets him that gets him his gig doing Wide Awake, which is you know kind of his first really like recognized theatrically released feature with um, Joseph Cross and Dennis Leary and Dana Delaney and um, Rosie O'Donnell, which I've never seen. Have you seen it? I have not seen either of his first films, but it is crazy to think that he could jump from that to this. You know, like mm-hmm. what enormous ecumenical leap from yeah. I, I, it sounds like a relatively disposable you know film about spirituality to this zeitgeisty phenomenon of a of a psychological thriller although M Knight maintains that he thinks it's it's reductive when people say he makes movies that are defined by you know their darkness or their twistiness he uh-huh. feels that all of his he, he he wants his films to all be defined by spirituality 
I get the impression he's a very spiritual guy. So it makes sense that his first two movies deal so much with religion and spirituality. And he maintains that that is a through line through his entire oeuvre. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, I guess. But uh, he does seem to rely on his twists. And, and, uh, <laughs> that is so one thing doesn't necessarily uh... negate the other. You wonder if The Sixth Sense was a modest hit instead of a career-defining, ego-exploding hit that Sixth Sense was if he wouldn't have relied on the twists going forward, right? If, if he would have maybe switched it up or not gone back to the well. Who knows? He might just be a one-trick pony. I mean, as, as we've seen throughout his career, anytime he's sort of gone away from his twistiness or tried something different, it hasn't really worked, you know, whether it's Last Airbender or After Earth or <laughs> whatever it is. I mean, it's this was the pinnacle of his career in 1999, and it's really been all downhill from there. And I, and I wonder how much of that has to do with the crazy success and probably the inability to to top this first big movie he did. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're saying in some ways this film being such an enormous critical and commercial success may have been the worst possible thing for his career? Too much too soon. Well, I mean, not for his career. He, you know, this has been his calling card. He's been able to make movies steadily since Sixth Sense. And, yeah. You know, creatively, artistically, I, I wonder if it's had an adverse effect. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the fact that he feels obligated to deliver something with a twist. I, I, part of me wonders how much expectation we have or how much expectation producers who wanted to work with him had of him delivering something that had, you know, some sort of unexpected ending. You know, how much of that expectation was kind of like laid at his feet. Not only is this the biggest hit of his career, it's also far and away the most critically acclaimed film he made. I mean, it's 86% on Rotten Tomatoes compared to the next highest, which is Signs at 73. Yeah. Signs is actually the the Shyamalan movie that I revisit the most often. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually really kind of like that movie. And I, I really kind of like it right up until the end. I think everybody agrees that the end is that movie's problem. The twist is very stupid in that movie. But up until, I mean, there's some really interesting stuff going on. I mean, of course, the father is a is a priest who's having a crisis of faith, so that you know falls under that umbrella. But I think Mel Gibson's kind of fantastic in that movie. I think Joaquin Phoenix is really fun. It's, it's Abigail Breslin's kind of breakout role. Yeah, the, the two worst things about that movie are M. Night's performance. Yeah, <laughs> he horribly miscast himself there, and then the last ten minutes or so of the film. Just looking over his filmography right now, it's like yes, he's relied on twists, and none of his movies have been as good, and sort of a lot of them have been very bad involving a twist. But they're all kind of bad in different ways. That all being said, right? Okay, sure. You know, Unbreakable is just kind of boring and you know kind of silly at the end, like. The village, I kind of like that idea, but I just think the execution is not very good. I mean, it's probably a more interesting movie if that twist is revealed, you know, maybe in the second act or something, right? Also a movie I don't hate. There's a lot of things about that film. I mean, he starts working with Roger Deakins there. The Village is an incredible looking movie, incredible ensemble cast and some really fun scenes and some really great uh, monster design. Like, I love the way the the monsters in that movie are really scary looking. Yeah, which is yeah. a t- I think that's a tough thing to pull off. I mean, the ones the aliens in in uh, signs look pretty silly, mm-hmm. but the monsters in the village are, are pretty damn scary. I kind of do respect the guy. I, I finally saw Split. I still haven't seen Glass. I I enjoyed Split just fine. You know, I, I thought it was enjoyable. I thought McAvoy was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So did you see Glass? I did. I saw both Split and Glass. I liked Split. I really didn't like Glass. 
That seems to be the consensus. Yeah, I mean, th- those two movies split 77% Rotten Tomatoes, Glass 38. Both hits, though. I mean, the consensus was that after The Visit, which was kind of like uh, his return to doing something very small, but people seemed to really like it, and then Split kind of became this sleeper hit because that's a Jason Bloom thing, right? Didn't he start working with Blumhouse on Split? Uh, I'm not sure. I think that's the case. I think I think Bloom, uh, Jason Bloom, yeah, Jason Bloom produced Split and Glass. Consensus with Split was like, oh, he, this is like kind of a comeback. This, this is sort of like a return to form, and Jason Bloom seems to be able to steer M Night to uh, back to the essence. Sure. Um, although you know, Glass is just he makes a lot of mistakes with that movie. It's it's <laughs> it, it's big when it should be small, and it's small when it should be big, and yada yada. I think I've softened to the guy a little bit over the years. Uh, throughout the you know late '90s and into the 2000s, because I was so sort of anti Sixth Sense, I think I was always giving the guy a hard time, and I think I was secretly probably having you know experienced a little bit of Schadenfreude when mm-hmm. he when he got humbled. I mean, it doesn't help that he seems to be. A- pretty self-serious guy yeah and doesn't help that he probably considers most of his movies like hidden masterpieces or misunderstood <laughs> works of art right i i've not seen the last airbender but i really would love to get him drunk and hear what he actually thinks about that movie right <laughs> yeah because you're right he may think it's 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 a secret masterpiece yeah i, I mean from what i've heard that's one of the worst movies ever made so <laughs> i haven't seen it so it's not coming for me who knows maybe it is a Lost masterpiece, but and then he tries to do uh, After Earth with the uh, with Will and Jaden Smith. It, it seems like he almost learned all the wrong lessons from the Last Airbender. Th- those two films back to back. I mean, that's his longest break in between films is three years between the Last Airbender and After Earth, and then and yeah, then the Visit, Split, and Glass. And uh, it'll be interesting to see where he goes from here. I mean, I mentioned it during the AFI podcast and i actually misremembered it as the cover of time magazine he actually was on the cover of newsweek perhaps not quite as high profile (laughs) i also misremembered that that time magazine cover was after was between signs and unbreakable i'm sorry i'm sorry i I misremembered that it was between six cents and unbreakable it actually was between unbreakable and signs Interesting. So you could, if you Google M. Night Shyamalan Newsweek, you'll see a cover that says the next Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And I think he's standing in a cornfield because he was obviously on, on production of Signs. Boy, talk about, you know, setting the guy up for a standard he's never going to be able to live up to. You know, I don't know the guy. I haven't seen too many interviews with him. You would hope or think that a guy like this who is who is extremely talented all the time, like he is, he is a talented guy behind the camera, and yet... He has written every single movie that he's directed. You wonder if you know he would be more mercenarial if he had taken the more Spielbergian path of, you know, cultivating projects that weren't his own and you know turning them to something something great and sort of jumping between genres in that way. If he'd have if he'd have a, a better career thus far, but uh, again, like that sort of stuff, and it's it's hard to overstate how big he was after Sixth Sense and for a few years there how sort of omnipresent he was. I wonder if all that got to him and, you know, maybe the pressure got too high or his stubbornness with wanting to have total control over everything he did. Like, I I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like his career could have gone a few different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably would be the right move at this point to be a little more of a gun for hire. You know, you're right. You're right. Maybe do something that maybe try working with something that you didn't write yourself. Maybe be a little more of a, of a journeyman. There's no shame in that. You know, that's the Spielbergian way. Certainly not. I mean, you know, Steven Soderbergh uh, maintains that the the turning point of his career when he finally figured out the kind of filmmaker he was always meant to be was when he realized that he wasn't a writer. You know, like he basically started directing other people's scripts right around out of sight 
Aaron Brockovich traffic, and that's when things really kind of turned around for him. So I would like to see that. I would like to see the M. Night Shyamalan movie that didn't feel obligated to be the next film from M. Night Shyamalan. Like, right out of the gate, he became a brand, and then that brand very quickly curdled into a scarlet letter, didn't it? I mean, he, he, yeah. became, a, he became a punchline there pretty quickly. It, he, I mean, really quickly. <laughs> I mean, all it took was the village was like the start of it. And then once Lady in the Water happened, it was, uh, you know, the guns were out. And then he stopped, he stopped putting his name, you know, his name stopped popping up in trailers of things he was associated with. And at the end of this movie, I mean, I, you know, it is his third feature, so give credit where it's due, but boy, it is just such a just like big font a film by M. Night Shyamalan. I know. <laughs> like it's really, it's really a stamp, man. It is a big, thick rubber stamp at the end of this thing. I was, I was just, just googling M Night Shyamalan to see if there were any, uh, any news items about anything upcoming, uh, and it's mostly him just reflecting back on Sixth Sense as the twenty year approaching. But he has, cl- he claimed a week ago that he's talked to Marvel a couple of times. Um, whether that's wishful thinking on his part or not, that would that would maybe be interesting. Probably not too on brand, and he probably wouldn't be open with uh, Marvel's uh, interference with his vision. I, I wouldn't mind seeing that. I'd be interested in seeing that. On rewatch here 20 years later, any any new thoughts, anything we, we didn't cover the last time we discussed this movie? Any revelations, things that really worked for you this time that hadn't worked for you before, things you noticed or discovered this time? I mean, that, that is one of the great pleasures of this movie is is discovering little nuanced details. And that's, I mean, that's part of the reason people went, wanted to keep going back yeah. to see it over and over and over is they really wanted to uh, investigate all those little details. And I still don't know exactly the moment when... Haley Joel Osment realizes that Bruce is a ghost, or if he ever does, because some people maintain that he absolutely does. Some people aren't quite so sure. No, I, I agree with that. I, I have not figured that out either, and that's something I have looked for on the last two rewatches. Honestly, like I've I saw this movie a bunch of times when it came out, and I saw it a bunch of times right after on DVD because I really enjoyed it back in the day. I feel like this viewing was pretty similar to my last viewing, and it, it's it's a movie I respect. I think it's beautifully filmed. I think it's well plotted. It's atmospheric. I, I enjoy pretty much the entire thing. I, you know, it's a little tiresome just because I've seen it so many times. I think it's an effective film, and I really think it's one of sort of Bruce Willis's best performances. And Haley Joel Osment is is definitely something, and it's you know fun seeing one of Tony Collette's uh, early roles that really brought her to Hollywood. Nothing crazy for me in terms of new things I picked up. How about you? No, I guess I was just surprised that I enjoyed it so much this time around. I think just this You're letting mo- your past go. You're, t- you're getting rid of your baggage, Matt. You're, you're seeing it with new eyes. I like that. Well, I'm trying to just allow myself to experience the small pleasures of this movie, and there are just the little quiet... Like, to me, this is a, this is a movie of whispers, right? This is a movie yeah. of quiet moments. You know, punctuated occasionally by uh, Misha Barton, you know, jumping out of the shadows and vomiting, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it that which is that much more effective because we've been um, we've been lulled into a false sense of security by how quiet most of it is. You know, I love the scene where um, Bruce Willis makes a deal with Haley Joel Osment that he can, you know, every time he gets something, every time he gets something right, he's going to take a step into the room. Every time he gets something wrong, he's going to take a step back out of the room. And to me, that's that's what makes the movie so pleasant and so pleasurable and kind of such a good movie to sort of fall asleep to. Yeah. It's just, it's a strange word to use for it, but I do find it all to be very kind of like soothing and pleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, minus those few screechy <laughs> moments, <laughs> I, you know, I still always have a, have an issue with some of the the logic police stuff, and I still am not super into the whole Misha Barton subplot and the um, Munchausen by proxy and 
you know, I get that that stuff is sort of like a narrative necessity because he has to have like one small victory in this attempt to become, you know, friend of the ghosts or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fine. I just don't think it's, it's just, it's just, I just don't find it nearly as interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. I I don't mind that subplot, but I think another point in this movie's favor is it's, you know, it's pretty economical, you know, 107 yes. minutes. Yeah. It, uh, get in, get out. Get in, get out. I, I respect the hell of this movie and, you know, it's, it's, it's almost sad watching this movie and seeing the potential of, of young M. Night Shyamalan and knowing what, what would come later, right? Or an, or a young uh, Haley Joel Osment, for that matter. I mean, he just he didn't have those movie star looks, man. It just it wasn't going to happen for him. You know, it's so funny. I was just thinking about child stars recently and how you know how goofy he kind of you know, grew up to look, considering that he was just this cherubic little towhead who was just so adorable in this and Forrest Gump, of course. AI may have potentially done him kind of dirty because he is obviously intentionally very creepy in that movie. And he and Spielberg obviously work to make him so off-putting. And I kind of feel like people have been creeped out by him ever since. I mean, he's <laughs> he's kind of creepy. I guess he's kind of creepy in the sixth sense in his own way. But he's also sort of cute pretty much ever ever since AI. Just nobody has, has ever thought of him the same way, right? I mean, I, mean, I think it's I think it's ever he since grew Spielberg. up. His voice his voice dropped. Yeah, all that stuff happened. And now he's got, and now he's actually sort of he's kind of putting together an interesting little sort of comedic second act yeah you know he was one of the better parts of of the not so rewatchable entourage movie you know he popped up on um on silicon valley he's in that very silly uh mini series with will ferrell and kristen wig remember that oh yes yes i never saw it but i know exactly the soap opera yeah Yeah. exactly and you know he pops up on podcasts and he uh, he's very self-effacing about all this so yeah i I got nothing against the guy i mean this is really revelatory for a child actor i mean i think he completely deserved his oscar nomination and i just buy all the stuff between him and bruce wilson all the stuff between him and tony collette tony collette also a very very deserved oscar nomination this was kind of an important film for Bruce Willis because you know I think he had kind of like squandered a lot of the of the goodwill after uh, Pulp Fiction right yeah a little bit like if you look at his career through the 90s it's really hit and miss hit and miss now there's big hits you know there's 12 Monkeys and there's Die Hard with a Vengeance and there's Nobody's Fool and there's the fifth, the fifth Element Armageddon of course but you've also got you know Color of Night and North and Last Man Standing you know and The Jackal yeah. remember that movie Mercury. Oh, I, saw it, I saw it in the theater. <laughs> Mercury Rising. Uh, the Siege. That crazy movie. The the Breakfast of Champions. What's his name? Kurt Von, the Kurt Vonnegut adaptation that Alan Rudolph yeah. did. Right. <laughs> yeah. So Bruce needed a hit, and uh, and luckily he found one. One of the biggest of his career. So this movie was number two in the box office. Be, made more money than Toy Story two in nineteen ninety nine. Behind Phantom Menace, and it was was the highest grossing horror film until it. Isn't that crazy? Horror film of all time. For 18 years. Yeah. It comes out and it debuts to $26 million, uh opening weekend, number one at the box office, August 6th, 1999. And then for the next one, 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 two, three, four, five, for the next six weeks, it basically does 25, 23, 20, 29. And then it goes down to 16. But it really owned there for two, for pretty much two solid months. That's crazy. I think it's on. I think it was a 40 million dollar budget. Yeah, uh, ended up doing about 673 worldwide. You know, I, I've been hard on this movie over the years, but I want more of this kind of thing. You know, like this is truly an example of something that we and, and we, you know, bemo- we bemoan this all the time, and we're always hand wringing, kvetching about this. But this is truly something we don't see anymore. And we're going to talk about another movie here in September 
that was also an unexpected smash hit and ended up winning Best Picture. Well, you want to reveal what that movie is as a nice little segue, Matt? <laughs> oh, we got one more before then. Okay. We're going to do both Bowfinger next week as a palate cleanser because that's just that's one of my all-time favorite comedies, and I really need that as a palate cleanser between The Sixth Sense and, and American Beauty. Uh, but yes, of course, we will talk about I, And I honestly think we need another month. I personally need another month to sort of plot my strategy for how to how to cover that film. But both Bowfinger... It's just it's one of my all time favorite comedies and, and sort of like Run Lola Run. I kind of want to embrace that as a bit of a reclamation project because I think nobody really talks about that movie. I'm fascinated by that movie for a number of reasons, not least of which is Eddie Murphy's fascinating career. Uh, the trailer for his new film Dolomite is my name just premiered this week. You know, one of the many films that he's done where he's played multiple characters, but. That might be my all-time favorite Eddie Murphy performance in Bowfinger. I also think it'll be interesting to talk about Frank Oz because he's obviously had a crazy illustrious career and made three great movies in the 80s and three great movies in the 90s, and then that was pretty much it. And he just completely went off the rails as a director after Bowfinger. Matt, I got something to say. I haven't seen Bowfinger since 1999. Oh, you were in for a treat, my friend. All right, I'm excited. Until next time, this has been We Like Movies, Retrospectating 1999. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye. Hey everybody, Matt here with a quick, friendly, and humble request. As we round the corner into our ninth year on the way to a decade of We Like Movies and closing in on 300 episodes, we thought it might be a good time to talk about donations. If you felt so inclined, perhaps consider visiting the donation page at www.welikemovies.com and help us out with a small ovation. Anything you'd be willing to contribute would help us offset the cost of seeing upwards of 100 movies in theaters per year, as well as the expense of maintaining the site. We're not looking to get rich off this podcast, and we certainly don't do it for the money, but any assistance you'd be willing to provide lessens the financial strain of producing the content we're committed to providing you with. Thank you so much for your continued patronage. 2019 is going to be our biggest year yet, and we're so excited to have you with us. Thanks again.